When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, Stakuya here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, my hoes, especially if you are either listening to this to the podcast on Spotify or if you're watching this on YouTube, since once again, we are actually posting things to YouTube for like, what, the fourth time now? I have no clue. I don't keep track of it. I know. We've done this a lot. But either way, the last piece of the puzzle that we are missing for this is that we're going to be getting a better camera, hopefully this next month. But depending upon where you are listening or watching this, thank you. Thank you very much. Also, there's only six spots left for our early trip. So if you guys want to do that, make sure to sign up because... It's going to be so fun. Like we have what, 18 people so far? We got 18 people. So yeah, there's six spots left for that one. And then Peru got confirmed. So there's that. So yeah. If you guys want to join, let's go because Japan was amazing. It was a ton of fun. A lot of fun. Except for getting strep throat when I came back. But that's a whole other story for why you all heard the episode here from this last week. Anyway. The story that we're going to be talking about today that we're going to be going into is the story of Peter the Great of Russia and his grand embassy. I mean, honestly, Gab, I could have done an entire episode dedicated to just Peter the Great, but here's the problem. You don't have a short story when your name ends in the Great. Well, there was the other Peter the Great who wasn't great, and his was pretty short. Ah, uh, see, he wasn't the Great, though. He was just Peter. There was a lot of Peters. Oh, it was Catherine the Great, so he was just Cat- married. He was the husband of, yes. <laughs> he was yeah. the husband of the Great. Yeah, he was Peter the not so great. He was Peter the uh, the uh, the wearaboo, basically, which yeah. is for those of you who don't know what that term is. I mean, it's it, it's used to associate people who are obsessed with Germany and World War Two. Uh, in his case, he was obsessed with Prussia, which was the state that went on to form Germany. And uh, yeah, he basically sold out his own country just because he really wanted to be a German noble, even though he was the emperor of Russia. For him, that was better. For him, that was better. Some be people that. make suspicious choices and you know, what are, what are you going to do? Exactly. Okay. But today's episode is on... Peter the Great. The actual, the great, the good Peter. The good Peter. And the, his grand embassy to find that. Okay. The grand embassy that we're talking about here is literally a massive journey. So an embassy for anyone who, I mean, you're looking at anything here for, pol- for it's politics. It's not the big buildings where they have all of, you know, the diplomats. Yes. It's different. But it is a diplomatic meeting. And what usually they would have for like, oh, it's an embassy is like, yeah, you would have a physical place that is an embassy, right? But then in other cases, it was a actual journey to go to a location for a diplomatic event of some kind. Like you are going there specifically in order to meet. It's a diplomatic mission. And in his case, he wanted to lead his own for the purpose of studying because he was a guy who was obsessed with knowledge. He didn't really have a lot of that back in Russia at the time. 
And he wanted to be a hands-on learner. So he just went full undercover boss. He did. He did. For anyone who's seen the show Undercover Boss, I want you to imagine this right now. Almost seven foot tall Russian man. One of the only, this is at a time, right? Where everyone was super short. They're like, what? Five foot one, five foot two, five foot three. The average height in Europe at that time is just like barely above five feet tall. And this almost seven foot tall Russian giant is just walking around in disguise. Like, oh yes, I totally won't stand out if I just wear this fake mustache and everything else here. Totally not. Totally not. And he's actually emperor of the country. Yeah. It sounds like something straight out of a, um, you know, those things for novels, like those fantasy novels, or especially like targeted towards a young adult and young women, where it'd be like, oh yes, she was perfectly average in every such way. But it's like, no, they're actually stunningly beautiful and everyone is weirdly obsessed with them. It's like- It's the glasses. The mustache for him is the glasses for every single woman in like those 2000s. Rom-com. He was just your average everyday Russian. Nothing special about him. He was seven feet tall. Like literally just this giant of a man. Okay. So let anyway, us just tell us the story. Tell us the story. Okay. So we're going to be getting into the story of this, right? So you got Peter the first of Russia, who he was the first one of this. He was the first Peter. And first he was like 50. Oh yeah. No, the Peter is for the Russians with the same thing of like Louis is for or the French. Stephen. And no. Is for the Americans? Not, no, not very many Stevens here for royalty-wise. Well, probably not royalty, but everybody's name I think the Greeks Steve. had multiple Stevens because it was like Stephanos. That was a thing because Stephen is a Greek name. Um, and then in the case of like the, the English, you got George and whatnot. You got Louis and Georges and then Peters for Russia. Like that's what you do. Anyway, or Frederick for the Germans. A lot of those. Anyway, moving on from that. The thing about Peter is that he was the emperor of Russia, but he didn't just, he wasn't like a diehard Russian. He, he, he wanted to strengthen Russia, but the big thing was is that he really loved foreigners, like a lot, especially during the trips that he would take. Like the big embassy trip that he took was specifically out of love and admiration for everything that was going on in Europe at the time, because this is a period of massive development for Europe. And the way that he gets to that point is really interesting. So yes, we're talking about specifically his embassy. We're not going to go into a lot of the stuff for his rulership, but we will talk about how he got to that point in the first place because it's kind of a little bit of a funny story. So, okay, Peter, right? He was born in Moscow on the 30th of May, 1672, and he was the son of Tsar Alexis and his second wife, Natalia Klebnova Narashkina. There's Russian names in here, people. Narashkina? Narashkina. Okay. I, I don't know. Okay. He, he, he was the son of this lady, Natalia. We're just going to say Natalia because that is more than likely how I'm going to be able to refer to her for the rest of this. So although he was the third son of the czar, which normally means that people don't really expect that he's going to be able to do anything, people from a young age thought, okay, this is going to be the guy that's going to be the next ruler. Why? Because his other siblings, his two older brothers were sickly as hell. Well, the first one, was like just actually sickly. Like he was a very weak child overall. The second was deformed. Okay, so people, you couldn't be ruler if you were sickly or they just expected you, if they you expected became- you to die. Yeah, if you became ruler, you just- Bad flu or pneumonia, like something rolls around one year. And this is where- That's th- so sad. They were like, your days are numbered, small child. No, but seriously, they actually would expect that. It's one of the reasons why there were so many cases when talking about mortality rates for children throughout history where- 
there were many cultures that you didn't get a name until you had survived your first year. I mean, that's understandable because childhood mortality rates were abysmal. Yeah. And then there were a bunch of places in Africa where you, you got a name, but it was a bad name. Like you got uh, like something that was ugly or bad or evil. And you did that because th that way the spirits, like the evil spirits of the world wouldn't go after you because you had a bad name. But it's like, it was like having something good invited evil to you, basically. Interesting. Yeah. So there was, anyway, his two older siblings were weak and deformed equally. I think his, his, the middle child, so his first older brother there, not the eldest, but he was actually like, um, like he, he had a lot of mental issues as well. So it was just one of those things that people didn't really expect that he was going to be able to survive. Peter, from a very young age, was a guy who was surrounded by luxury. He was looked after by a governess, uh, a wet nurse, a staff of playmates, which he has a staff of playmates. Like you had to, you had people that were expected to grow up with the noble so that they would have lifelong friends and simultaneously people who would be their supporters. They paid their friends? Not paid per se, but you could have royal gifts and other things like that. And from a young age, you'd be sent to live with them. It's like arranged friendships. Like, you know how you have arranged marriages throughout history? It's an arranged friendship, basically. I need some of those. If anybody <laughs> wants to be my arranged friend, this is your, this is your chance. You're not going to put that on on the internet here, Gabby. You're going to attract way too much unwanted like attention from that. I have two friends, okay? I could use a few more. <laughs> so not only was he looked after by these people, but simultaneously he had an educator by the name of Nikita Zotov. And this was an individual that from a very young age instilled in him a lot of the stories of Russia's past, of its greatness that it had. Because before it was Russia, it had been Muscovy, and it was really the dominant power in the East, uh, with the exception of the time in which it was under the, the, the thumb of the splintered off forces of the Mongols. But that's a whole other thing right there when talking about the Kievan Rus. Sorry, I... Europe is such a fun place for history. Not to mention, we haven't really talked much about Eastern Europe, and that is a massive pain at so many different points. It's just, there's so much. There's literally so much. So anyway, the question of succession, right? So Tsar Alexis dies in 1676, and he passes the crown to his eldest surviving son, Fyodor, who is only 14. Now, Fyodor treats... Uh, Peter's mother and himself very kindly. Perhaps Peter is too young, of course, to be any kind of real political th threat to him, or maybe it's because he's going to need some kind of backup. But remember we talked about with uh, the, the, the kids being sickly? Only a few short years later, 1682, Theodore passes away. So he dies at the age of like 20 or 19 at the time before he can turn 20, real young. But the problem with this was that at the time within Russia, there was no real succession law that was going to determine, okay, so the king has died and there's no siblings or the king has died and there's no children. So we're going to have like the brother or like the uncle or like someone that is codified within the family of who is next in line. But to there's take it. two brothers. There's two brothers. Because now there's Ivan and Peter. Correct. Yes. There's two brothers, which is a little bit of a problem. They would have this here because it's a bit of a succession crisis. Russia is, they had so many success. You remember the time of troubles with yes. all these succession yes. issues? And they can figure out who the boyars wanted to be ruler. And yes. they kept trading back and forth. And that's precisely what ends up happening here. Because they have no real formalized 
wait, like who's going to be in charge? This ends up going to the boyars who go and vote effectively to determine who is going to be the next ruler. Logically, it should be Peter if Ivan was also sickly because you don't want a king for two years. So here's the problem. Although Ivan was older, right? Uh, he was also lame as in like, you know, his body, like half of his body just straight up did not work because he was deformed and he was almost blind. And this is talking about as like a teenager. So they voted for Peter. Yeah. So, reasonably. So the nobles, of course, they, they don't, they don't want necessarily that to be the kind of ruler. But the bigger problem is that it's not just the ruler who is in charge. They're both underage. Oh, they'd have someone over them. So there's a regent that's going to be in charge and the regent is going to be determined by their familial relations. And because remember, they come from different, uh, they don't have the same mother, right? So it ends up being is that the nobles overall, like Peter's foster grandfather, Artemon Metinev, they like him better over Ivan's relative, which is another Ivan, because there's a lot of those. There's a lot of Ivans that are Ivans or however you want to say it when it comes to Russia. Okay. It gets real confusing real fast. But uh, this guy is Miloslavsky and they do not like him nearly as much as Peter's relative. So after the nobles had said goodbye to Fyodor, it was decided that the people were going to choose who was going to be the next czar. So the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church at the time, Yakim goes out onto the staircase overlooking the cathedral square and he they put it out to the people for like who's going to be the next czar, right? It's not just the nobles, though, of course, they probably have a whole bunch of paid actors and others that are out there in the streets yelling for people. And the crowd starts shouting the names of who they want. And as the story goes, Peter's name ends up being shouted significantly louder than Yvonne's. Tell me they didn't get the next ruler the way we would get like a song contest one. Yes, yes, they did. Like a according talent to the story, show? Yeah. yeah, according to, it's like straight up out of a talent show or like, what is the game show where it's like the louder that you would shout, the more they would and vote And those for? are so rigged too, because yeah. it'd be like two really loud people and like everybody else is like, whoa. Yeah, and that's, that's pretty much what they did. And I'm sure that the boyars had put a whole bunch of people out there in order to be able to support the individual that they wanted. I'm sure, I'm sure. <laughs> That is something. So what what ended up happening then, right, is Peter gets voted from this to be the next czar, and he's only 10 years old. He is a 10-year-old child, and at first he refuses, but then he accepts it because it's the will of the people, and it's what they want, right? So he goes and complies. But there are elements within the government that are not happy about this. So the Russians have a thing called the Streltsy, and the Streltsy would probably deserve an entire video or podcast or something in and of themselves. But these, it was essentially the permanent army of Russia when it didn't really have a permanent army, right? And they end up rising in revolt after a certain princess within the, uh, within the empire here, Princess Sophia, who is Peter's half-sister. She believes that Ivan is the person who shouldn't be named as czar. And you may wonder, well, why would that be the case? Well, the thing why is- Why would that be the case? Good question, Gabby. It's because Sophia was very different from a lot of what you'd associate most women with in history. She had this very dangerous thing called opinions. Oh, she was educated. She could read. Yes, yes. She had thoughts, you guys. She had thoughts. And the thing is, she likely knew that Yvonne was mentally not all there. 
and that he could very easily be manipulated by other people in power, something that she kind of wanted for herself. So she insists, of course, that Yvonne is actually the one that is supposed to be in charge, not Peter. And this is going to be a little bit of a problem because at Fyodor's funeral, she goes and raises a massive stink about this, like just causes a huge scene, which causes Peter and his mother, Natalia, to have to flee from the funeral, which is something that only invites a lot of criticism because they didn't stay there. Mind you, he's a 10-year-old child at the time. It's literally a 10-year-old kid, but he's seen as weak because he didn't stay behind and stand up for himself at the funeral of his brother. Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. I get it. Honestly, it's it was the perfect opportunity to tussle and prove his worth, and he... Didn't tussle yeah, or prove yeah. his worth. However, the main problem of all this wasn't even Peter. It wasn't even his mother. It was the brother of Peter's mother. So his uncle. Can you guess who the name of this guy was? Ivan. Yeah, it was another freaking Ivan. So this guy was another Ivan in the Streltsy, like that private, like the military force here that was almost like the private army there of Russia. The commanders of it believed, it seems, that. The brother of Natalia, this Ivan, went and poisoned Fyodor, right? And that's why, even though he was a really sickly kid and for things not in good health for years, that's why he died at the ripe old age of 19 or 20 years old. So they march in on, like, on the city, right? Full military force here, and they essentially demand that he be released into their custody because they believe that he has been, that he was the one who killed the previous ruler. These being rumors that, can you guess where they came from? Sophia? Sophia. Sophia. Sophia is the one that starts planting all these rumors around that, oh yeah, it was totally them that did this thing. So Natalia ends up being forced to give her brother to the Streltsy who then torture him into admitting that he did this and then kills him. 
So the Streltsy, now satisfied at this point that, you know, all the traitors had been dealt with, go and leave. And this revolt, you know, Peter, at the age of 10, sees this happening to his uncle and is like, wow, I don't want this to happen to me or anyone else. This is really bad. Reasonable. Reasonable. You know, reasonable thoughts for a 10-year-old to have after seeing their uncle tortured to death. So, yeah, that, that, that's what happens. And then the Streltsy, they don't just leave. They simultaneously demand that Ivan and Peter become co-rulers. Which because is, that always works. Oh, yeah, yeah. And this is interesting because it's the first time in Russian history that this happens. Like, this had never actually happened before. Well, they were kids, so they're like, you know what? You guys can share. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't even a matter. They didn't even have to agree to it. The boyars, the ones that were the nobles who had the real power behind everything, they're the ones who agree to make this actually happen. And so they, you know, because they don't want there to be any more bloodshed. And on the 29th of May, a further appeal was made by them that made Sophia the regent, the person who was actually in charge with the real power behind all of this. And the story ends with Sophia taking out both brothers and ruling happily ever after. You would, you would think this. Yeah, right. And Did so, she not? No, she doesn't. I and know she doesn't. So she just rules things here for a while. And on the 6th of July, the coronation of Peter and Yvonne takes place. And the coronation, again, was the first time in European history that two male rulers of equal status were crowned at the exact same time. Like this was not something that had happened. It wasn't even just for Russian history. It was like in European history, this did not happen. Trendsetters. Yep. And so during the years of Sophia's regency, Peter and Yvonne would fulfill their, you know, formal duties or like whatever it is that they had to do. But for the most part, Peter would have a pretty stress-free childhood after that. You know, minus the torturing and killing of his uncle. Minus happens all that here. So the thing is, the education that he receives at this point is very unconventional because you would think, okay, you're, you're a person that is being groomed for rulership. So that's like governance, uh, head of state stuff. You're being taught all that, right? Right. No, fuck that. No, <laughs> he doesn't want to do any of that. He wants adventure. So this young boy, right, basically abandons any kind of thing that he can do for formal lessons and just starts, he, 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 he focuses on learning stuff for outdoors. He, he finds a boat that is like a, um, uh, and he has it rebuilt. And from that boat, he, he learns to sail. And like that becomes a thing that he becomes obsessed with. He got a hobby. I'm guessing back then people didn't have hobbies like rebuilding a car just because you could rebuild a car. That's just a reasonable hobby, Steve. He built a boat and learned to sail. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. That's what he wanted to do. <laughs> he just got a hobby. So at the age of fifteen, he uh, he comes across, he hears about this instrument that is supposed to be able to measure distances without moving, and he's like, "Oh my god, that is so freaking cool!" Because listen, you, they nerded out about things it, 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 for weird stuff in the seventeen hundreds that we would think about today, but that was a really big deal at the time. I know because before you would have to have people walk there. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. You remember that? That was like, one of the jobs. Wasn't it in Rome and in Alexander the Great when he was doing his conquest, they found out the distances because he would have the counters walking behind him. Yep. Counting the their steps. Yeah. The Greeks and from them, the Macedonians and how they, they mapped out all that stuff. So he asks Prince Yakov Dolorki to go and bring one of these things back from Paris after his diplomatic mission there. But there was a one problem with it. It was a thing called an astrolabe. No one had any idea how to actually use this. So they import this device from Paris to bring back. And they're like, yes, we have the thing that can measure distance. How the hell do we use this thing that measures distance? I'm sure he figured it out. 
Well, they can't even do anything because no one in Russia knows how to do any of this. Russia is basically a backward state by this time. No one, like people look at Russia as this big kind of sleeping bear, which was always an image that Russia had of a backward state that was massive in terms of its resources and military potential, but very outdated in everything that it did. It just, it just didn't really have much capability at the time. So they get pointed in the direction then of a guy called Franz Timmerman, who is a Dutch merchant who is living in Russia. And Timmerman becomes a close friend of Peter and fuels his interest in learning geography, geometry, and arithmetic. So together, right, they're walking around this old estate at a place called Ismailovo when Peter asks for a, a storehouse there to be opened. And that is where he gets, he finds a boat in there that is unlike anything that they have in Russia, right? This was an English boat because the English at the time were the major sailing power. Like they were the major naval power that was coming up because they had already beaten the Spanish and everything. So he is amazed by this thing. He has this rebuilt. They fix the boat. And then that becomes his like lifelong hobby of just sailing as we previously talked about. And he becomes determined from that point on Russia, which is almost basically landlocked that he is going to get his own damn Navy. And oh, it's going to no. be the best one in the world, damn it. Imagine your ruler deciding to take on the one battleground that nobody's trying to fight you on. Yeah. So that becomes like his lifelong love of what he wants. So before too long, right, some time passes and Natalia calls Peter back to Moscow where it's decided that it is time for him to get married. Because, you know, that's just what has to happen when you are a emperor, ruler, whatever. Like, we, you're a noble. You for the heirs. For the heirs. Exactly. So he gets married, and it takes place on January of 1689, and his bride was a woman by the name of Eudoxia Lupakina, and she was three years older than Peter. She was very shy, and she came from a very good conservative family. You would think that it would be a good match, but no. No. They still end up having children together, and it's a successful marriage, but he hates being married to this girl. Did they measure the success of a marriage on how many children you had? or? Yes. How nice you were to each other. Well, the compatibility from that, but the children was the biggest part. Okay. Easily, that was the biggest part. I was part. just wondering when you said successful, but he didn't like her. Yeah, no, that was the whole point. The problem was, this was a guy who from a young age just wanted adventure. He wanted fun. He was, he was an outdoorsman and loved to do things. She, however, was extremely afraid of everything. She was not very educated because she was raised specifically for the purpose of being a bride. And that's it. She had no knowledge of anything from the outside world. She was overly aware of the fact that her husband was the co-emperor of Russia. And so she was so deferential towards him. Like you think of like the dutiful wife who obeys her husband, right? You'd think that people would want that back in the day. She was that to such an extreme degree that it was, you know, that stereotype about a girl who molds herself to like, she will change her personality completely in order to appeal to her boyfriend or husband or whatever. Yeah. She was that, except she didn't change her personality. She just did whatever he wanted and simultaneously was always afraid of him, even though he didn't do anything to her there. She wasn't enthused. No. no. So it just sounds like a good wife. At least she pretended. Yeah, but he wanted someone more fiery. He wanted something that was like passion. He wanted something that was, you know, a, a person that could actually be a companion, not just, yes, my Lord. Of course, my Lord. That wasn't what he wanted in like a partner. That wasn't what he wanted in a wife. So they ended up having three children, but only one of those child or those children ever actually ended up surviving to adulthood. So 
successful, but not very successful. Anyway, he barely waited for his honeymoon to be over before he was back to just shipbuilding. But then Natalia, his mother, calls him back to Moscow as tensions are really rising up within the court. As Sophia knows that with them getting older and him getting married, um, he's now going to be an adult. And an adult, guess what? Guess what? Doesn't need a regent. Wait, he got married and he still had a regent? Yes. That's where all the political power was, right? Yeah, but you're old enough to have kids, but you're not old enough to... Yeah, probably I can see that happening. Yeah, Yeah, and so the tensions between them are not exactly very good, right? So one of the big things is that Peter is refusing to acknowledge the presence of Sophia's lover, because she has one of those, and it's something that he finds to be very insulting in the the presence of... To the or... Yeah, yeah, I mean, you got to think. She is the regent over everything, and he just does not like it. He's not going to be a saint exactly either because he's going to get his own mistress and cheat on his wife. Listen, royalty and the whole thing for like- Well, he is royalty, I guess. It's what ends up happening, right? And there's a difference for a man in history doing this versus a woman. I mean, let's be real here, people. The good old sexism. (laughs) The good old standards that they have. You know, that's exactly how it works. So there's this big religious event, right? It's a Russian Orthodox thing that is a celebration for the icon of Our Lady of Kazan. And during this, Peter attempts to have Sophia removed, doesn't want her there. She refuses, and so he himself goes and leaves. He goes into the countryside. While there, he learns that Sophia is starting to gather a bunch of armed forces around her, which ostensibly is for the purpose of her own protection. Like she's gathering the Streltsy. And he's like, oh shit. She's going to come after me. Oh, because she's the one who killed his uncle. Because she's the one who killed, or, I mean, basically, yeah. Well, from the she rumor got his that uncle killed, yeah. It. Yeah, because that whole thing with the Streltsy, it was just going to be a repeat of exactly what happened, like, what, eight years earlier, nine years earlier, something like that. And so he goes and flees to a fortress, and he then from there demands that the Streltsy colonels come there to meet him. Sophia doesn't want any of this to happen. No, she does not want her military leaders to leave her. So she starts offering them all these big, lavish, like, gifts and stuff, like bribes, basically, to keep them loyal to her. They don't stay, though. They go to him. They report to him. They go and swear their loyalty to him. And she pretty much loses everything very rapidly. Well, why was she trying to keep them secretive from the king? Because it was really the only authority that she had. I get that, but it would look so bad. She didn't think of the optics of that. Of course, they're going to go back and tell the king. Yeah. So that's what ends up happening. She loses all of her authority rather quickly. There's no bloodshed really that happens with that. She gets resigned to a convent like for the rest of her life. That actually doesn't sound so bad. You're chilling, sewing, praying. In comparison sleeping. to what could happen in Russia, especially his royalty. Yeah, no, that is not and nearly as like bad as what could happen. That's just like a little retirement home journey. Love that for her. Ironically enough, yeah. And you'd be surprised at how many different points in history. It's like, oh yeah, the ruler of a country is going to retire. They go off to become a monk or a, you know, sent to a nunnery or whatever. Like that's pretty much what it is that would happen. So. Yeah, Peter is now the guy who is in charge and he goes and returns to Moscow, even though he doesn't really want to, on October of 1689. And at just 17 years old, so mind you, he is 17, that is it. He is over two meters tall. 
He is nearly seven feet tall at the age of 17 in a time where people are like five feet tall. And he doesn't give a shit about learning how to rule or do any of the stuff there now that he's actually going to have more authority. Instead, he is way more interested in foreigners and all the education of stuff that he can learn abroad. So much to the disapproval of the patriarch, who is very displeased with what he does here, instead of spending all of his time studying in like, you know, his private quarters or being with, you know, the Orthodox Church, he is in the foreign quarter in Moscow. He was doing his little study abroad, multicultural. Yeah, basically. Elective. Yeah. That's I'll, what he was doing. Just about every kind of ancient city here, especially for the trade districts, would have a foreign quarter where more foreigners would live and they would gather around each other for kind of support. That's just where you would have these things. So he spent more time there and would meet the Scotsman general, Patrick Gordon, as well as a Swiss adventurer by the name of Francis Lefort. And both of these men were fascinating to Peter. He loved these guys. And they soon became very close confidants as well as statesmen within Russia. Like, imagine this. Like, you're just, you know, and one of the guys. Foreigners. They're, they're just foreigners. And that's a really big deal. Yeah. It's Russia. Yeah. So it's not only that. And it was through Lefort that Peter would go and meet his mistress that he would have for 10 years, a German woman by the name of Anna Mons. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. Just yeah, just, just because his wife was too nice. Not even just too nice. She, she wasn't fiery enough. Yeah, basically. Anyway, over time, right, he starts hanging out with Russians less and less and less, and Peter becomes surrounded by this massive cadre of just literally foreigners. Uh, we're talking soldiers, uh, local boyars and nobles who are also have his same interest, adventurers. It becomes this thing where it's a a group of people around him that guess what the name that it gets. It's such it's, it's such a funny little companion name. I'm gonna look in the notes. I, I have it in the notes. <laughs> just just look at the notes and you're gonna see why this is hilarious. Okay, I'll be honest. You're like way ahead of me in the notes. Yeah, I'm just because I put talking. it down to look at you. <laughs> it's fine. So the name that they get, the Jolly Company. Oh, I just found it. That's the, really sweet. It's, it's a nice little fun name. It it's really is. It's just a is. band of intellectuals and fun people. Yeah, pretty much. That's what it is. So after all this goes down, then becomes his career for the military, sort of. See, Russia had effectively at this time been at war with the Ottoman Empire, but it was under pressure from Austria and Poland to do more for the conflict because these states were always in constant flux with one another. And Peter saw this as the perfect chance for his dream to come true because he had been training for years. All he wanted to do as a kid was sail and lead soldiers. Like that's, that's everything that he wanted. So he goes and moves down with his regiments and forces determined to take the Turkish fortress of Azov. And he is confident that his men with his leadership are going to be capable of defeating the Turkish forces there. But he soon learns there is a massive difference between playing war games as a kid and actually leading men into battle. Yeah. In yeah. the war games, you're in control of the tide of the battle and nobody actually dies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Unless you really get into it. Unless you really get into it. Yeah, you know, the whole Roman style for things. So two battles end up taking place. You know, when they would, because here's the thing, for anyone who's not but aware of this. they killed these servants. They didn't actually kill other people, did they? Oh, for Rome? Yeah, they did. They would have entire battles where they would, they would have gladiatorial uh, uh, matches where they would use war prisoners, where they would recreate battles from history. Like, you know how we would recreate a battle? Like I recreate stuff that I put out here on YouTube for other things where I'm showing In stuff for like video total games. war. Yeah. 
they didn't have video games, Gabby. They did it real. They were the definition of fuck it, we'll do it live. And literally <laughs> okay, we'll do it live. would do it live where they would create smaller scale battles and people would die in those. Reasonable. Yeah. So that's, that's what they would do, right? So he, it doesn't really go out very well. Two battles would take place in August of 1695 and the Russians were unsuccessful in both of them. And to make matters worse, there was a bit of a divide among the commanders for how exactly to like proceed. So Peter and his men retreat north with the plan of, okay, we're going to come back this next year. And back in Moscow, he's like, all right, we can't just do this with an army. We're going to need more stuff. We're going to build some ships, some fleet, like a fleet that is going to be capable of providing support from the water. And so they do. Peter goes to work building his new fleet of ships. And then Tsar Ivan, his brother, ends up dying in January of 1696. Because remember, he was also very sickly. He was blind and he was lame. Not lame as in like he was a boring guy. As in like he was physically heavily deformed. Like he had, he had a lot of issues there. And so later that year, Peter and his men returned to the forces of Azov, this time with double the number of forces that they did before. And simultaneously, Peter has no dissension among his ranks as he is the sole ruler of Russia now. And that is it. With over 40 ships behind him in order to be able to support his assault from the water. The Russians go and start a siege, but the Turks very soon after this, seeing the overwhelming numbers and difference between them, surrender. And Azov would officially become a Russian town. And this is the first time in a campaign that Russia had been successful since the reign of Tsar Alexis. Literally, since the Tsar, like the previous guy that they had, something like what, uh, he died in 76, like almost 20 years earlier. Because, they had not been successful in battle. Because homie was like, let's focus on navies. Let's focus on some ships that we can use on this one little area. Yeah. Because go figure, <laughs> you equip cannon to one of these things and you're able to sail right up next to it and bombard the thing. It just works a lot better. So this all brings us to the point that we were meant to talk about here in the first place. The Grand Embassy. The moment where Peter decides that Russia has fallen way too far behind the rest of the world and it is his personal mission that he is going to drag Russia into the modern era. That's what he does. So Peter goes and travels in disguise under the name of, still Peter, but it is Peter Mikhailov. And that way he can go and freely observe Western Europe without any kind of fanfare. People aren't going to be lying to him about nearly as many things. And he's going to be able to see the true nature and ideas and everything that is going on in Europe. Of course, he is still going to reveal like elements like, like himself as ruler to uh, like the nobles and other people that he encounters. But for the most part, he is going to keep himself hidden, right? And in his absence, he goes and appoints Lev Narchin, which is like his uncle, along with Prince Boris Gotzlin, as well as Prince Peter Brnowski. All of these people he appoints as like a kind of regency council to rule Russia in his absence because he's going to be gone for a while. Like he is, he straight up plans on leaving from this thing and being gone for a full year. A year. Which is a long time when you are the sole ruler of a country to be like, yeah, hey, I'm guys, I'm just going to fuck off right now. So uh, who is left in charge? In charge? It, is, it is his uncle. It is like oh, the two people you just other listed. guys. Yeah. It, it's, it's a whole series of people that forms like a, a regency council effectively to govern the country while he is gone. And he 
puts Prince Fyodor Romodovsky, who is the governor general of Moscow, in charge of dealing with any kind of rebellions. So he gives him 12,000 men to guard Moscow itself. And so basically, hey, uh, I'm going to be gone for a while. If there's a rebellion, murder them. Bye. I feel like this would be a perfect opportunity for someone to just take over the entire country. Yeah, you would think so. Like his uncle? You would think so, (laughs) but they didn't really want to do that here in this case. He chose people that specifically were firmly loyal to him, that he knew that they were loyal, not just based off their skill or anything, which on one hand could be a problem, but on the other hand, less likely that he comes back and everything is flipped on him. So first up on here, Riga. Peter and the Grand Embassy go and skip by Poland because Poland is currently in a little bit of a state of political upheaval. It's not really good that's going on there. And they go straight to the town of Riga, which is in Livonia, which is modern day Latvia for anyone who was wondering about that. And that is currently at that time under Swedish control. And it is this picturesque, beautiful Protestant city with all these cobbled streets, with churches, all this beautiful stuff. And he has been interested in Riga as this is a major port on the Baltic Sea that, can you guess why this would be really important for Russia? It doesn't freeze in winter. I know, but also they had all the cool ships. I'm assuming the oh, yeah. ships were a huge draw for him. Oh yeah, it's a, it's a major draw for that, right? And so he shows up to this thing, right? And Eric Dahlberg, who is the Swedish governor there, is completely unprepared. He has no idea that Peter is going to be showing up there. And he tries to throw him, you know, some kind of, you know, welcoming feast, but he can't really show him a feast because the town just so happened at that time to be going through a little bit of a famine. So there wasn't really much food to go around. Also the optics of throwing a feast while people are starving. What is this? The French, pre-French revolution? Oh yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely not something that you want to do. But he's at least able to welcome him with some food. And so Riga is this really strong, modern fortress that Peter was very eager to be able to see and examine up close, as there was nothing like this kind of fortress that was to be found in Russia. But the Swedes, who were one of the historical enemies of Russia, didn't really like the idea of a foreign monarch coming up and examining their defenses. So there was a case where Peter is literally, it's the seven foot tall giant. He is outside. He is taking sketches and notes of the fortress walls and like how it's all constructed because he's fascinated by it. He thinks it's really cool. And a Swedish soldier walks up to him, angry as hell, pulls his gun out and threatens the king to shoot him. This could be a major diplomatic issue. And uh, I'm assuming it did become a major diplomatic issue. He threatened to shoot the ruler of the other country that is ultimately a little bit bigger. I mean, they have more people. I don't know if they could fight him. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. So he threatens to shoot the king. King is not happy. Uh, General Lefort, the guy who is the the Swiss person who is the friend of the of the of the emperor. He goes and complains to the governor who then has to apologize on behalf of the man. And as soon as the ice melts, right, and they're able to leave more easily, they go and leave Riga. The embassy leaves. They're not very welcome in their past that point. The relationship between Sweden and Russia by this point in its history had become very cold. Don't look at me like that, all right? I understand what it is that I'm saying there, right? It was a cold war in very much the sense of... uh, Icy relations. Oh my God. Oh Listen, my God. I had to. Okay. God, you're right. All right. So after leaving Riga, the Grand Embassy then reaches the Duchy of Courland, which is a Polish territory in Livonia. 
And there, they're welcomed by Duke Frederick Casimir. And this was complete opposite of everything that they had received in Riga. It was a massive, lavish banquet. Everyone is welcome. Huge festivities, music, games, steady flow of alcohol. It's the works. Everything is going down. And aware that Peter has this huge passion for like ships in the sea, the Duke organizes for a yacht to take Peter to his next destination, which was Konigsberg, which is modern day uh, uh, Kaliningrad which is the little enclave that Russia has within uh, Europe. And it, at the time, it's located there in what is part of the Holy Roman Empire. And there, it is ruled by Elector Frederick III of Brandenburg, which is a electorate within the Holy Roman Empire, which is still a bit of a mess by that time, right? It's German politics at this point in its history. It's a massive, absolute mess. So anyway, they go there. And a huge reception is thrown with them, a massive procession leading them into the city. In the march, there are grooms, there are royal guards, nobility, pages, members of the Grand Embassy. They're all moving forward in massive fanfare, which is also very interesting considering the fact that he was showing up in disguise in the first place. But this wasn't the goal for him. He wasn't trying to go there in disguise purposely yet. Those were locations where he wanted to go in order to be able to uh, discuss things. So the Grand Embassy goes and spends several weeks in Konigsberg, where Peter would go and often meet with Frederick and would study artillery and ballistics. And while Peter was in Konigsberg, he got the news that Augustus II, who was the elector of Saxony, ends up becoming the king of Poland. Remember the whole thing about the political upheaval? They didn't know who was going to be the next person that was going to be elected to be the king of Poland which was a whole thing that would happen there at that time, considering the Sim. I could probably do an entire thing on the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and its monarchy because it's a very fascinating little story. Anyway, so this is very good news for him because they had good relations with Saxony at the time. And in comparison to the hostility that they could have faced otherwise with Poland before, it's kind of a big deal. It's kind of important that they have someone friendly to them by them. So, this was not the goal of him, though. He wanted to move through Germany. He wanted to get over to the more Western nations because he wanted to get access to a lot of the ship stuff. And so hoping to travel to the Netherlands by ship, this at the time was deemed to not be safe because considering how relations were turning sour with, uh, with Sweden, which controlled a large amount of the Baltic, they couldn't really risk sending him by boat. So he ends up traveling by boat wagon through northern Germany, hiding his identity and avoiding as many people as possible. But finally, they go and reach the Dutch Republic. So at the time, the Dutch Republic was one of the most influential and prosperous nations in like all of the European states. It was massively successful. And I think we covered a little bit of history before on the VOC on like the Dutch East India Trading Company, everything they did. It was hugely successful. The, the Dutch state in and of itself was a massive, flourishing commercial empire, and its trade industries were ludicrously wealthy. So Peter was excited to visit this and see all of the splendor and the magic and everything for himself, and he reaches Amsterdam on the 7th of August, 1697, but would go and continue on to the town of Zandam on his own. He goes and leaves the rest of his embassy behind because this is where the disguise comes in. This is where he's like, I'm going to go and explore and see everything here for myself, right? And he goes to Zendem. He goes to these locations, but there's a little bit of a problem. See, 
The Netherlands, the people of it, are very aware that a pretty important person has been coming to visit them. After all, there is a massive embassy that was on its way to, to Amsterdam. And so people are looking everywhere for this massive Russian that is supposed to be visiting them. So what Peter had heard here at the time is that the city of Zandam builds the greatest ships in Holland, right? That's the entire reason as to why he wants to go there. And he intends to spend a few months there, you know, learning exactly how all these ships work. But it's not just a matter of like studying with a master or anything like that. Oh, no, 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 no. See, upon arrival, he goes and meets one of his old friends that he has, one of his old foreign friends, Gerrit Kist, who welcomes him into his home. And then he goes and disguises himself as a simple Russian sailor, and he gets to work. He specifically goes and purchases his own tools, and then he goes around and starts visiting all these different workshops, mills, iron forgers, etc., literally to get hands-on experience at some of these locations for how stuff works. And it's not too long that people in Zandam start whispering about how, hey, there's this really important person here that's just like walking around and crowds start assembling, following him around in different places, hoping to see this glimpse of this person that these rumors are all about. And so he starts realizing, okay, maybe, maybe my disguise isn't exactly working out so well. You're seven feet tall, bro. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, it doesn't exactly work out so well for him there. So he very disappointed and not really able to do much after only a week in Zandam, he goes and sails back to Amsterdam because he just, he can't really spend much time there. And Amsterdam is one of the world's wealthiest cities overall. And it is home to easily one of the biggest ports in all of Europe. And so it's surrounded by the rivers of the IJ and the Amstel. And every bit of this is a water city, right? It's the lowlands, it's the Netherlands. And so everything around it is surrounded by the ocean and water. That's all of it. And so Peter very quickly makes friends with an individual that is quite wealthy and cultured, a guy by the name of Nicholas Wilson, who is the mayor of Amsterdam and one of the directors of the Dutch East India Company. Now, you got to make friends with very important figures in the area. It's what you do. And Wilson was very sympathetic when Peter told him, hey, I want to do all this stuff, but these crowds of people just literally will not leave me alone. <laughs> So he tells them, hey, why don't you go and work with the shipyards of the East India Trading Company? It's a private location. The general public isn't allowed into this here. So that's something that's closed off from the public eye. Why don't you do that? He loved this idea. Oh, my gosh. So he just gets a job. Yeah, so Another he, job. Not only that, he leaves in the middle of the night to go back to Zandam right? Because he has to go pick up the tools that he bought in the first place and left behind there because he had abandoned that entire other project. <laughs> I know, I know, right? So he goes and does this. And then along with shipbuilding, he visits factories, he goes to museums, he goes to sawmills, workshops, gardens, like you name it, he is there. He is learning every single aspect of the city and all these. And he starts meeting with academics across a massive variety of subjects from chemistry to like, uh, to astronomy, to literally everything. Like again, you name it, he was involved in it. He was taking care of it. The one thing he didn't really seem to actually care about was art. Why? Like he, he just, he, he probably wasn't very good at it. So he was like, no. So there was all these, you know, Dutch masters, like he, he was being shown all the works of, Remem of uh, Rembrandt and others. And he was like, I don't care. 
the, the thing that he liked was he liked manual labor. <laughs> yeah. He liked manual labor. And then, you know, what art he liked, he liked art that was, was depictions of the sea and ships. Go freaking figure. It's like that one guy who's like knows every single thing about trains. Yeah. Yeah. He was or uh, helicopters or yeah. history. He was very focused in on this. Right. So eventually he goes and meets with the Prince of Orange, which is an interesting name there itself. That is the, that is the King of the Netherlands basically. Right. So it's time for, or, or sort of, it's a very complex relationship. I need to explain that whole thing in a future episode. I'm sure. But the Grand Embassy is now on its way to visit The Hague. It is the most powerful capital city in all of Europe. And first, Peter has to stop in Utrecht in order to meet with William, the Prince of Orange, and who is King of England, Scotland, and Ireland, right? William is going to be one of the most interesting people that Peter is going to end up meeting with. And he, he holds this guy in very high esteem, like long before they had ever actually met in person. Because at the age of 21... William was given the powerful Dutch military and uh, political powers and then given the task of facing down the French army that had invaded Holland. And against all odds, he had actually succeeded in repelling the French. 15 years later, he does something that no one had done since the time of William the Conqueror. He invaded and succeeded in taking over England. See, it's a little bit of a complex relationship for me saying that. The truth is that he was, he launched his invasion after being invited by the people of England to overthrow the monarchy that was there. Uh, Cause you know, still a relative and is the whole complex relationship that they had at the time. I'll cover that in a future video or something, I'm sure. But he was invited in and takes over the country. And from then on, it just works out. He's like one of the most powerful rulers in all of Europe. Peter, Good for him. <laughs> yeah. Peter, can Peter relate? Yeah, I mean, I guess so. I mean, they meet with each other multiple times over the course of this, but their meetings are always secret and informal. We have no actual records of anything that really went down within it. Like no, st not step-by-step. Step, that's not the right word. Um, uh, meeting minutes. Meeting minutes. Yeah, I guess that's, that, that's how we would describe it. Corporate they, speak. Corporate speak, yeah. They have nothing that really describes this. What we do know is that Peter tried to get William to join him in an alliance against the Turks, but this didn't work out. Peter told William of his plans to visit England next, and William was so happy with this that he offered an English envoy to travel with the Grand Embassy itself. And so before leaving Holland, Peter would go and return to Amsterdam, where he would continue his shipbuilding and studies, and the ship that he was working on finally was completed during this time and, guess and it was what? amazing. It was the best ship. Not only was it amazing, but it Whitson, was? yeah, the guy who was the, uh, the, the mayor of Amsterdam just goes, Hey buddy, you want the ship? And just gives it to him as a gift. I would like, why can't that happen to me here? Right? Because you're not, you're not Peter the Great. You're not ruler of a country. No, but if anyone out there wants to give me a ship, I will accept it. Not even a boat. He just wants a ship. No, it's got to be a ship. I mean, you're, you know what's right. giving me a dinghy, all right? No, I, I don't want a dinghy. Uh -huh. Give me a three-masted. Well, also he built sail. it. He built it. It's true. So I don't know. Are you going to get down there and build a ship? It's fair enough. All right. So he's given this ship as a gift up from the city of Amsterdam, and he is so happy with it that he names the ship the Amsterdam. That's so, a I mean, good name. Which, I mean, it makes sense. If I had a ship, I'd name it. And so after spending, think about how much he was traveling around before this. He spends 
five months in Holland alone. That is just where he was. And he was only supposed to be gone for a year. So does he only stay gone for a year or? Thing is, we're going to get to this. He was supposed to actually be out longer. Sort of. Things kind of happen, but. Oh, uh, his uh, grand embassy has to come to an end. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll explain it. So he finally leaves for England on the 7th of January, 1698, right? And London at this time is the second largest capital in Europe. It is second only to Amsterdam in terms of wealth, though soon after this, it was going to end up overtaking it as London and England in general would become like the, the commercial hub of effectively all of Europe. It also did have, um, it's, uh, it's dangerous parts of it, of course. That was something that did happen, but it was still remarkably wealthy. And so landing in London on the 11th of January, 1698, Peter goes and stays in a nice home and is receiving visits from the nobility there. William III also goes and pays Peter a surprise visit at this location. And on the 23rd of January, 1698, he would pay a formal visit to William at Kensington Palace, where they would have a long meeting. He would also meet the heir to the throne, who is the future Anne, the Queen of Great Britain. And William III would persuade Peter to have his portrait painted by an artist there which they still actually have at the King's Gallery at Kensington Palace, which is, if you want to look that up here for like his portrait, it's really interesting. On the 3rd of March, 1698, he is gifted another boat. He's going to have a whole fleet by the end of Pretty this. much. Who needs to build a fleet if you can just go around being gifted ships, really? So he is gifted a royal yacht by King William III, and he is so delighted that he names it the Royal Transport. because. It's literally a ship for transporting royalty. Like, you know, that, that's how that yeah, works. Yeah, no, I get it. He is then invited to view the English fleet in its full force. And in March, he travels to Portsmouth and the Isle of Wight, where they hold a mock battle and they stage it all up for him. So this guy, who has really only ever seen like these small ships and everything else that he was kind of working on, never actually seen them in full force. He goes out and just is the entire English Navy at the time holding a massive mock battle, firing off cannon at one another. Reasonable. And he is astounded by this. He loves it. He was into LARPing and shipbuilding. That's my kind of guy. Oh, yeah. So then on April 18th, 1698, Peter would meet William for the last time before he goes and leaves England. And according to some reports, it varies depending upon, you know, where you actually get this from. He left either a, he left some kind of gemstone, either a massive ruby or a diamond. We don't know what as a gift that was uncut. So it was like the raw rock of it itself. And then he goes and leaves. And on the 2nd of May, 1698, he leaves England and returns back to Holland, where he is reunited with the rest of his embassy. After this, Peter would go on to visit uh, Vienna. He would take his grand embassy there and he would go to Leipzig, to Dresden, to Prague. And in Dresden, the electoral state of Saxony, he is given a warm reception by the, on the orders of Augustus, who is the elector of Saxony. That is the guy that took over Poland. And, you know, he gets along with this guy really, really nice. It's, it's a really good thing. And he does kind of enjoy his time in Vienna, but there's a little bit of a problem. What's the problem? Vienna is boring to him. Like, yeah, he participates in all the stuff. He goes to the churches. He does all this other thing. But you know what Vienna doesn't have? What? Ships. I kid you not. The big thing was, is that he was, it's like the equivalent of going to this place and be like, oh yeah, yeah, this is night. Hey, uh, where's your harbor? Oh, you don't have one. Oh, okay. 
I, like, he, I, was, I, he was like, I'm leaving. This is no, this is a bust. I kid you not. That is that is basically how that goes down. Me. And so, <laughs> so it didn't have the riches or the harbor or any of that stuff that he wanted. It, the whole big thing was that it was the head of the or the not the head the um the capital. I guess the Habsburgs. You know, it was the focal point of their empire, right? So he he stays there for a little bit of time and it takes a month of negotiations before plans are put in place for Peter and Leopold I, the Holy Roman Emperor, to meet. And their first meeting literally only lasts 15 minutes and he stays for two weeks in Vienna and then that's it. Five months in Holland, two weeks in Vienna. That's it. Just does not care. He also had plans afterwards that he was going to go and visit Venice, but he did then receive some rather concerning news. Uh, that the Strelzi, the guys that we talked about there before, that four regiments had revolted and were wa- uh, they were marching on Moscow. So those were the guards, right? Those were some of the guards. They were some of the private force. It wasn't the private guards that were stationed for Moscow, but you had Strelzi regiments from other parts of the empire that were now staging a, a rebellion. So he decides to cancel his trip to Venice, which he would have loved considering everything in there that is naval, because, you know, it's the city of water. And he returns back to Moscow with only one other detour. And that being is that he, this time, instead of going north around Germany, decides to go through Poland. And there in Poland, he meets with Augustus. Augustus, who is massive. He's a massive big figure, tall and strong. And I believe I did a short video on this guy before because he is famous as being one of the most prolific breeders in all of European history. That was the ruler? He had so many mistresses, so many things. Because he, he was this big guy, and strong. No, literally, this guy was massive. Like he They're was into that. No, like he was a massively strong figure, and he was tall. I think he was like six foot six, six foot something, and he 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 was built like an ox. The man. I'm went, into that. I I cannot even remember the number now. I know I did a video on it. I think it's recorded that he had at least like ninety bastards, or something along those lines. It is. He had. <laughs> I, I, I might be, I might be talking. I like so focused in on the guy he was, but this is the guy that he wanted to win because. Um, Friendly relations. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So they're there, they, you know, they drink, they, they, they talk, they. She's got all, mistresses. But probably a lot of gutting mistresses. Yes, that is probably true. And there they discuss, you know, the conditions for forming an alliance against Sweden. And it's here. That against is, Sweden. Oh, oh Sweden, Sweden was the aggressive power. I get that, in the north. but damn. Yeah. So this is where the alliance against the Swedes was effectively going to be formalized. He was just in Sweden. Yeah. But remember that whole thing with Riga, that relation did not exactly go over well after so being threatened Riga, to be shot. Because Riga soured everything. Now they're about to form uh, an alliance. Also, Russia wanted a warm water port. So they wanted something that wasn't just going to freeze. And simultaneously, Sweden was very aggressive towards everything across Northern Germany, going down into Poland, everything. It was, um, it wasn't exactly the best in terms of relations, so to speak. So eventually they would go and return. All of the stuff for his embassy was such a massive influence upon him that this is going to inspire a lot of different reforms because everything that he saw in Europe just made him go, oh my God, we could be this great. And we have the manpower and resources behind us that we could do this. And you know, one of the first things that he does, one of his first grand reforms, one of the first things that is going to fix Russia, that is going to make it great. A Navy. No, he taxes beards. 
What did he say? Reasonable course like, of action. So one of the things was, is that more the majority of people in Europe at this time are clean shaven. Like that's one of the things that you would have as like a part of like trimming and taking care of yourself. So it was seen as a sign of modernity of, you know, that, that's, that's how it worked. Russia, however, big, hairy beards. Like that's a thing that you would associate as part of a, a sign of strength and manliness. So that was a very Russian thing was to have a large beard. He places a tax upon them. So, I mean, you can still have them, but it's a thing that can not only raise money for the state, but simultaneously it is going to encourage people to modernize and to abandon the old ways that they had of, uh, uh, of Russia. It's very funny. He also goes and remodels the Russian army. Uh, he creates new regiments. He introduces new modern military uniforms because military uniforms are so very important, of course, to the modern military. Reasonable. Absolutely. And he also appoints an ecclesiastic who is going to take over the church's administration and become the supreme head of the Russian Orthodox Church. Now, the crown is going to be more involved in actually controlling things within the church so that the church is not as much of its own separate power and influence that is going to be able to challenge the authority of the crown. He is trying to centralize the state under him. He also goes and develops a whole bunch of industries from this, sponsoring the creation for textiles, leather work, weapons making, and that is a huge aspect to create their own weapons work. And it's very, for a very particular reason. Let me ask you a question, Gabby. If you're going to go to war with someone and you don't actually have like a place that produces modern weapons and stuff, where are you getting them? You got to buy them, right? What happens if you go to war with another power that is the place that you are buying weapons from? You have no weapons? You got no weapons, which in turn means that everything for them is going to fall apart as they have no way to actually produce their own domestic arms industry. So what then happens afterwards for this is they start developing a lot of their own industries and Russia starts its path to greatness, all inspired by the grand Russian embassy that had left under Peter the Great. And that, my friends, is the story of the embassy. 